Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. And in this inaugural podcast, we're gonna dive into Exodus 33. And as will become our practice, we will start with the text. So we're gonna do uh, verses seven to eight of Exodus 33. And Moses would take the tent and pitch it for himself outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And so, Whoever sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so when Moses would go out to the tent, all the people would rise and each man would station himself at the entrance of his tent and they would look after Moses until he came to the tent. Okay. To start in a passage like this, it really helps to orient us in time and space to where we have been in the story of the people. Let's do that. What comes to mind for the two of you for uh, what's important in the book of Exodus so far? Well, we know that we've been in Egypt previously. So the beginning of Exodus starts with the people of Israel being in Egypt as slaves. And Moses, uh, through the work of the Lord, the deliverer, comes and liberates the people across the Red Sea and into the wilderness where they've been spending um, a considerable amount of time. And I don't quite know how long they've been in the wilderness. And it would be yeah helpful to orient, okay, where are we at in the wilderness journey? Yeah, great question. And that so and they were slaves in Egypt for about 430 years. So their history was they've been in Egypt for 430 years. They get out through Moses. Um, then they go through the uh, wilderness, which when we say wilderness, it's really a desert. Like they're in the Sinai desert. So it's not like wilderness trees. It's like wilderness, no water. Um, so they are in the wilderness um, and it takes about three months for them to get to Mount Sinai. And they stay at Mount Sinai for about a year. Um, they leave Mount Sinai in Exodus 40 or in Numbers 9, you can see them leave it. And so they're within that year that they've been at Mount Sinai. Based on where it is in um, what has just happened right before this, probably they're about 40 days, um, maybe so maybe like two months into that time at Mount Sinai. It's curious that we're like the end of Exodus, they're still just getting like they're just in the beginning. Right. The whole book of Exodus really is within the first two years of God's going to free them. They're freed and they're figuring out who they are as people. So if we think about like just how long it takes to find a new identity when you have had a cultural and religious identity for 430 years, um, when, when you're within the first two years, you're going to be kind of messy as a people group, figuring out who you are. What were you going to say, Jason? You had well, more. I was going to say that I think it's really fascinating to think that they are there for that long. Cause I think when I read the Bible, it's really easy for me to just, you know, kind of sit down and like, you know, as the classic evangelical practice was in my youth, you just read a chapter or two a day. And so over the course of a month, you've read all of Exodus and it kind of feels like 
yeah, this took about a month. I'm sure for them, it took about a month, maybe not even, because they're basically just going from slavery to liberation to Mount Sinai, and then they're off and running. And like what you're helping us see is that, oh, this was like a year of sitting at the mountain. And there's days and days of nothingness waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain, being called up the mountain. Like, what are they doing for that entire year? How do they interact? What does it mean to be in the wilderness? I mean, there's so many questions that instantly pop up when you tell me that they're sitting at the foot of a mountain for a year, um, mm -hmm. because I know that I can get bored in like an hour. And so <laughs> what does it mean to be sitting at the feet of a mountain for that long? Time is so funny. Like the Bible is just kind of a weird, if we're trying to think of things as like, well, this many years, this happened and this many years, this thing happened, but like, there's not like a book on like, here's the time in Egypt. Here's the mm -hmm. 430 years. There's not a book about that. Mm -hmm. And so like the time is so funky, like even how we're like, how we read it, how it's printed and how the story is told um, makes it, makes you kind of wonder like what's going on with all the time. Right. And we even, when we were thinking about the time in the wilderness, I think one of the things that happens is many of us are familiar that they end up in the wilderness for 40 years. At this point, they don't yet have that trajectory yet. And they don't yet know that they get to the edge of the promised land around a year and a half or two years. They decide not to go in. That's when it becomes 40. So at this point, they don't know how long it will be before they make that crossing. At this point, they don't know that they're going to decide not to go. At this point, they are in this like intensely liminal space where they have come into the wilderness. They've been given manna and water. Like they have food and drink. They're at Sinai and Moses is getting, is currently, he has been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and basically disappeared and to receive the law. During that time, they freaked out because they don't know who they are. They have nothing yet to center their life around. <laughs> All they they aren't who they were. They're not yet who they're becoming. And so the story of the golden calf gets situated in there because they're trying to, it just makes so much sense in the context of they have been at this, it's been like four months since slavery, and they don't yet have a new center. And they're looking for something to root in, something to trust, and their leader disappeared. So they're looking for a new leader. They're like, Moses must be dead. <laughs> Let's figure something else out. This story then is right after that. They find out Moses didn't die and that the golden calf wasn't quite the way to center around a new thing. But the thing they are going to center around is the law and the tabernacle, which is still in formation. It's still being given. The tabernacle is not going to be completed until Exodus 40. And so right here is that liminal space of what do we do now? so that we can become who we're supposed to be later when we don't yet have the stuff yeah. to center around that thing. And I love that you're using that word liminal. I think that word liminal space is such an important word. And for those that might not know what that word means or are new to that term, liminal space is just kind of that in-between where you have, you've come from one understanding or one thing and you're not yet in the new thing or the next thing. And you're, you're kind of waiting in anticipation, maybe doing some preparation, but maybe you're kind of wandering and trying to figure out what is going to be birthed next. And so there's a, there's a process, there's a, there's an emptiness sometimes to a liminal space. And so we see, as you're talking, like we see the, the people of Israel in that space of, okay, we're not in Egypt anymore. We're not in the promised land yet. We don't really know how to orient ourselves 
in the here and the now? What is this space and how do we give it frame and structure? And like you said, they try with the golden calf and now they're being instructed to this tent of meeting, which is really interesting. The relationship with God is also new, right? Because they like they had some level of like knowledge of the God of their fathers. Like that's how God introduces himself to Moses in Exodus 3. But like really the people have been in Egypt, immersed in the systems of Egypt and the oppressive systems that they were enslaved in. So as they're figuring out who they are now, they're also figuring out who God is. Is God trustworthy? <laughs> is does God care about us? Are we going to be smote from the earth? Like, what is it to center life on this God, which might be different than the way religious centering looked in the place we came from? How do we reinvent our faith? If I think about like my, like just my personal experience, it reminds me of a time of like having to move from a particular job, but it felt like a move from a career, like stepping out of that. Um, with the pain and hurts and all the histories there, all the hopes and dreams, like putting that down and then going like, what am I, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, is that my career anymore? Am I, am I like, is what God, like, I felt like that was like, I felt like I was following what God was doing. Like it felt like I was doing the right things. And then suddenly it wasn't the right thing anymore. And like <laughs> playing with different career choices, like putting out applications. I mean, at one point, like I had been on staff at a church, moved from that experience. And then I was like, well, maybe, maybe I should like pour beers. Like maybe I should bartend. I like people. <laughs> like, that might, maybe that, or maybe I should go back and like go be a business analyst again. I had done that before. Maybe I could do it again. Like it's a space that's not unfamiliar of like wondering what worked for me before isn't working for me anymore. It's off the table. And I don't know what's next. I don't, I'm not sure, but I want to keep trying. And I think that kind of gets at the heart of like what this podcast is hopefully going to be. And I think what the reason why we're doing it, right, is this whole human condition that we find ourselves in, which is kind of all liminal space, uh, if you want to get down to the heart of it. Um, it's It's all... What have we come from? Where are we going? Who am I in this right now? How have I been formed and shaped? And what's the foundation of my life? What's the construction that someone gave me? What are the questions I'm asking now? Um, you know, what are the what are the pillars that I'm holding on to, or the things that I'm grasping onto or clinging to? And maybe what do I need to let go of because something new is coming or something new is being birthed? And what does that look like for me? What does that look like for us as a society and the systems that we've created? I mean, there's so many directions we can take this. And I think that's what's so dynamic about the Exodus story is that it's really the human story. It's really the individual story, but it's also the collectivist story of who we are as people as we're navigating ourselves into um, the next thing, whatever that next thing is for us, whether that's right here, you know, I'm sitting in New Brighton, Minnesota, you know, 2021 in the midst of a pandemic, wondering what's going to be birthed out of this. Who knows what 50 years from now, if someone listens to this, what's going to be birthed for them, both as a person and as a society or as a system that they're a part of? Which, I mean, I love that 
you named Exodus as like the story of the human condition because it helps us. Like sometimes we get jud- we get judgy, right? <laughs> Especially about something like Exodus 32, which happened right before. How could the people make a golden calf? How could they be that dumb? Well, it's so related to what Lisa just said about like, I have, the people came out of Egypt with some skills and they came out with some stuff. They came out with gold. They came out with silk and goat hair or whatever. Like they came out with all the stuff that the Egyptians gave them. And they came out with the skill set of making things like they, they they weren't they were slaves that made things they hammered things out of gold they sewed things out of those materials and they have done nothing with their hands for four months and they're asking the question what do I do with this stuff what do I do with my hands as a part of this identity search who am I who are we and who is God and when like any of those changes individually are so messy when we now make them communal and then we make them also about communal faith identity. That's where we are then in Exodus 33 when Moses is like, all right, how do how do I help these people? <laughs> like they're they're struggling. <laughs> the timeline has gotten a little too long. They're not they they need they need something to help. But what do I give them? And he gives them a tent. He sets up this tent. The first thing I love about this is that he t- sets it he, up the tent outside of camp not at the center of camp. Eventually that's where the tabernacle will be is at this is in the center of everything. But in this space where they've been struggling for identity and struggling for who they are, what to do, you know, all that we've just talked about. I'm curious what we all see and why the place to go searching would be outside of camp. Like what is the value in leaving your tent and going outside of camp when you're in this kind of space? Well I think it really resonates with the idea of when you're trying to understand like either who you are, what your faith is, what systems you're a part of that may need to change, you may have to look outside of what has come to define you. If you are using, it's, 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 I mean, I, I don't, we're going to always use metaphors and they're going to be shoddy and not great, but like, it's kind of like cooking. Like, you know, I, I like baking chocolate chip cookies. They're like my favorite thing to make. I have the recipe memorized and if I use the same recipe over and over and over, but I expect my cookies to turn out differently, that's really, really not going to work. Whereas if I like try a new recipe, add a new ingredient, do something a little different, like cornstarch, cornstarch is amazing and it helps make my cookies fluffier. I had no idea until I researched this. And so suddenly adding a new ingredient, going outside my comfort zone, outside of what I'd already memorized, now suddenly my cookies are taking on a whole different texture. They're looking different. They, they still taste dynamic, but there's something happening that is new to this cookie. And it's because it's outside of what I always knew, as opposed to I'm only going to work with what I know. I'm only going to work with what I have. And so I know it's, again, all metaphors I'm, are going to I'm very apart, curious but... about cornstarch right now. I've never put <laughs> cornstarch in my cookies. I'm distracted by that. Well, I also, I feel like I want to steal the metaphor, but I don't know that I'll take it in the same direction, but I'm like, and sometimes like you make a recipe forever and then you get food poisoning and then you're like, I can't eat that no more. Mm-hmm. Like that. Something has to change. That I, I have to have something different. I can't, I can't stomach the thing that I loved, mm-hmm. that it brought me so much joy mm-hmm. that I knew so intimately. It, it suddenly has a thing. Mm-hmm. And so. That's really good, Lisa, because like how many of us can look back at our lives and be like the thing that I thought was so beautiful and so amazing suddenly became the thing that felt a little off 
or hurtful or oppressive or limited or uninviting to people that I was starting to learn their stories and fall in love with. And suddenly, like, if they're not invited, then how, why am I still in this space? Or, you know, like there's, there's a, suddenly it's, it's the thing that I thought was making me whole is making, is, is starting to feel not as, um, not as whole. Yeah. Well, and what's being switched then in this passage is, is the centering. So they've been centered around the mountain and the presence of God at the mountain. They've been centered around Moses and the centering just went bad with the golden calf. They had that in the center of camp. They were all around that. And so Moses switches the location. Let's change something up. Let's move to the outside and set up this place in Richard Rohr language that's on the outside of in. Mm-hmm. So you're leaving, but you're not leaving. This is mm-hmm. still a part of our camp. You're still a part of our people, but there's a place to go that's on the outside of in when you are seeking God. So you're not faced with it. It's not like in your face, the way the tabernacle every day, they're going to wake up once the tabernacle's built and they're going to look out their tent door at the tabernacle. God is very in your face. And that's the, and here God's like, okay, wait, let's ease, let's move We'll have it be a little bit more seeking, a little less in your face, because you've been scared of me. So let's let's switch. Right, that and up. I think that's the magic is they actually have to get up and go. It's not like they just have to, you know, stand up, but they actually have to move. They actually have to take it. There's effort. There's energy. There's um, time that that has to be considered in this process of going to that place. It's almost like a discipline in a really healthy way. I also, like, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, I can't, but I, I'm really drawn to the mountain experience. <laughs> like who doesn't want a big old mountain to remind you of like the power of God? Like, I don't know that I want to go to a little tent outside of the camp. I kind of like being able to like walk out my tent door and see the whole thing in front of me. Totally reorients me differently. Like I, I might be drawn and want that, but what might be best is actually this little tent going on the outside. <laughs> and, and I think if we go back into that story of their first, you know, time at Mount Sinai, they were invited to go experience the mountain, not just look at it. Right. But they all freaked out and said, no, 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 Moses, that is way too much for us. You go and you be our representative. You be the person we're going to stay back and relax. It's kind of like keeping, you know, your your growth at a distance, like, okay, you can go and grow and then tell me how it felt because I don't quite trust it yet. I don't want the new, you know, but I actually am really comfortable being able to eyeball it from here because it makes me feel like I'm connected to it, even though I've put no effort into transformation. One of my biggest pet peeves, and sorry to go down this road for a second, I get really, really tired of doctrinal um, faith as opposed to transformative faith. Um, I think it's really simple to find a set of doctrines and to say, these are all the things that I believe and agree with. And now I don't have to think anymore as opposed to, Oh, I'm human. I'm constantly being invited to transform into the likeness of Christ, transform into a more kind, humble person, someone who's a non-anxious presence in the world, someone who's bringing about justice and love. And the way to do that is not by being so solid on what I believe that I now go around oppressing people and making them believe what I believe, but to remain curious and open and to um, to recognize that there's beauty in a different story than one that I've ever experienced before. And so curiosity is actually the engine that moves things forward as opposed to um, certainty. 
And so, and, and I'm not saying that doctrines aren't helpful. Like we need certain things to, to help us wrestle, but it's the curiosity that actually propels us into a more inclusive and a more thoughtful and a more hope-filled justice infused future. But it takes that sort of going to the outside of camp versus having something declared from a mountain yes. takes a different level of autonomy. It takes a different level of vulnerability. Um, it takes a different level of saying later on, oh, I was wrong about that. Right. <laughs> like I thought God, I thought I was right, but I was wrong. Let's go seek God again. Like there's um, the, the energy of that is very different than like, and which is also very different from Egypt. This is a part of what they're wrestling with. Part of what exists in this system of oppression is a very strong list of do's and don'ts. And there's, you know who you are because everybody knows who they are. Everybody knows where they rank. Everybody's following the rules of the oppressive system out here. They're all invited to the mountain. They're all invited, but it takes some work to shift that individually and communally. How do we change to this place where we're invited into the relationship, where we're invited to wrestle, where we're invited to seek and not just told what to do? Well, it doesn't, you're not on your own either. Like it's not like, it feels like God is invited. Like the invitation is okay. That mountain thing didn't work so well. Like that, like maybe the sense of presence, you, you're just not catching what this is so let's 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 try something different it wasn't like well (laughs) i'm killing all of you and we're done it was there was a like okay that because how like terrifying i get like i don't always want to go first i like i would i honestly would probably be one of the people not even so much because of comfort but of sheer fear of like what happens if you go up the mountain What happens if I join? Am I worthy of joining Moses? Did I, should I be doing this? Is that my place? All kinds of like fears and doubts start to play there. And so I don't know that I would have sought the tent, but it is such a shift in like, it's a huge shift to make you, you have to stop to wonder like, what's God doing? Why are we, what's, what's at this tent? What's the, what's the deal with the tent? Right. Which is why you kind of see this dynamic of they all stand at their tent door. They watch who has the courage to walk to that tent. Cause everybody's watching you. I mean, I can kind of feel like if, when it's framing that the whole community is at the tent door watching Moses go, I feel like I just want to, I want to be a fly on the wall and see like, how much are they looking at each other? Like stepping forward, like go with me. Like, let's go together because it is, there's that communal risk of how am I going to be viewed if I think I can go to that tent? Who am I to go to that tent? Because the cloud ends up descending when Moses is in there and, and God's scary. And maybe I don't actually, maybe I'm not actually worthy of that. My neighbor's not going, maybe they know something I don't. Well, and I think that's such a beautiful question or a beautiful exploration about worthiness. And in Egypt, as slaves, they're not worthy of anything, or that's the, that's the message that's given to them. You are not even human, right? You are a slave. You are, a, a, you are owned. And they go out into the wilderness, and the big question is, well, who are we? What are we? What does it mean? How does this God view us? Are we going to be viewed by this God at, like we were by the Egyptian gods as just property to be utilized for the pleasure of this God? Or is there something more dynamic that we're supposed to be? And the mountain 
sure feels like a big thing. <laughs> it sure feels dynamic. Uh, my, like Lisa said, scary. So I, I love the empathy towards the people in that moment. But then the tent of meeting is this intimacy. And yet they're still all invited into that. And there's an inherent worthiness to say like, okay, you are worthy to commune in this space. You are worthy to be met in this sacred, holy space. Uh, and I think, you know, I would love to, you know, we've kind of explored a lot of what it means to, to be invited and to search or to move or to go, but also like, what are we going to, right? What are we moving into? And I think that's what this tent of meeting and maybe talking a little bit about that. I'd love to hear stuff, what your thoughts are and like, what are they actually being invited into in that tent? Well, I love that you chose the word intimacy because so the word, what the, what they are invited to do is that those who seek the living presence, um, the Lord can go out to this tent. And the word for seek is bakash. And I feel like the word seek is something that we can struggle with when we're thinking about faith, because we think like, well, is God hiding? Why does God have to be sought? Isn't God obvious? Well, actually the obvious God is what everybody was afraid of at the mountain. So what is it for God to position God's self into a place to be sought? And why would that, what, what is the invitation if there is a seeking posture? And I think that's really seen the intimacy of that can be seen because the same word Bakash is used in song of songs. So song of songs is an intimate portrait of two lovers. And in chapter three, there is this, um, the bride is troubled because she doesn't know where her lover is. Mm. Um, and in verse two, she says, I will rise now and go about the city streets and broadways. I will seek him who my soul loves that seek is Bakash. There is a sense of, I cannot rest until I find my lover because my lover is not here. That is the energy of the word seek. Do we want that intimacy with God? Do we think that intimacy of God is available to us? That there is somebody who, like, why would God invite that energy of seeking? What's in the seeking? Does anybody else ever have the, I struggle sometimes in the idea of like intimacy with God. And especially what, like, I, I totally resonate with what you're pointing towards, Steph, like, the seeking of a lover, but I sometimes I'm like, that feels weird with God. Like, <laughs> like, what is that? How, can you give me another frame? Like, is there another frame of reference for how that seeking works? Cause I like, sometimes that's a little disorienting to think about it. I'd, I yeah. don't want to see God as lover. Like that I think is probably what I'm trying to say. Yep. Let's find Let's put another one in. So, so for some of us, we're like, oh my gosh, that seeking sounds amazing. And for some of us, we're like, that's totally weird and gross. And I don't or know. Or like the intimacy it. sounds uh, amazing. Like the, the, the bridegroom or the, the, you know, the, 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 the relational intimacy is, is beautiful. And like, oh, I just want to be enveloped by the love of God or by the presence of God. And others are like, yeah, no, thanks. That sounds oppressive. It sounds like you're forcing this me to be in a relationship that I'm still trying to figure out. So let's not push me into it so fast. Um, so the other, another place we can see this word used is Genesis 37. So in Genesis 37, Israel says to Joseph, um, I'm sending you 
um, to go see to the shalom of your brothers and to the shalom of their flocks, which is a big thing to send him to because the history of this family has not been good. Genesis does not have strong family values and actually has pretty messed up family systems. So um, his brothers don't like him. And, and that has to do with a whole bunch of generational things. And his dad says, you go seek to their shalom, their peace, their wholeness. I'm sending you for that. And when he's in the field, on like trying to find them, somebody just says, what are you, what are you, Bakash, what are you seeking? And he answers, I am seeking Bakash, my brothers. And so this also still has intimacy to it, but it's that family unit intimacy. If I'm looking for my brothers and I'm looking for them for a purpose, he's not just like out and bored and looking for his brothers. He's been sent to his brothers to go fix the brokenness <laughs> and to go look towards Shalom. And so he is seeking his brothers and he is seeking a new kind of wholeness by seeking his mm -hmm. brothers. That is also another use of this word, Bakash, seeking. I love is that, that better, idea. Lisa, for you? I like that one better. Yes. Thank well, you. and I love that idea of wholeness, right? You talked about shalom and, you know, not to like dive into another word and try to unpack it overly, you know, quickly, but like shalom, that justice infused peace, that relational wholeness with God, within ourselves, with, with, with others, with all of creation, right? It's that, that, that movement towards holistic well-being in a way. And so that does sound to me as well, Lisa, sounds like something I'm ready made for. Like, oh, you're you're inviting me to feel like these relationships are meaningful and whole, and there's um, resonance with with within myself or with others or with God or with all of creation. The the purpose for why I'm here. Like, I can, yeah, I can I can want that. <laughs> you know, um, that sounds like it resonates with my heart and my soul. Well, and it gets at something else the tent is doing if we if we really think about it. So, Jason, you did a lovely job of framing like where these people came from and the oppressed system as slaves. And that's not the only people that are part of this community. So some people are also coming out of Egypt as slaveholders has been a part of the problem. Mixed multitude leads, leaves Egypt. So Egyptians and Israelites leave. And even amongst the Israelites, it seems like there was different rankings, right? Some of them were in charge of households. Some of them were in charge of making bricks. And so that communal identity of how do we become a different kind of people is also a part of the space they're in. And the shalom of this tent, even though the word shalom is not used here, I think that it's an appropriate connection, is there is one tent. There is no special place. There is no ranked place. There is no, and it's not fancy. It's not a fancy tabernacle where you're not bringing a fancy offering. This is a very level, it is a simple tent outside of camp that is the same place that every single human, no matter what your rank has been, no matter what resources you have, everyone is invited to the same participation of intimacy in the same tent. And we think we want that, but I think sometimes we want something a little more special. I mean, it feels like it's a part of some of, the, some of our faith journeys somewhat too, of like, the idea that we kind of want, like, we want the pastor to be the person, right? Like the people wanted Moses to be the person. And like, by extension of like, Moses doing the thing, I get the thing. Like, you go do it, then I get the thing. And the invitation that's put in front feels like, well, that's, it can be Moses, but you can also, you can do this. But it feels scary, like mm -hmm. to, to even trust that you, to trust yourself, to trust what you know, 
what you feel like to trust the thing. Cause like what they're coming out of, like has been very group, like community, like everybody's crossing the, the river together. Like everybody's kind of moving together. And this kind of feels like this thing where like, okay, you're all invited. Whoever would like to come, come. Mm. And it takes, it takes a different, I don't know. Like it takes something. It's personal. Uh, yeah. yeah, to whether to respond to that invitation, especially, I mean, to the, we've we talked about this too, that it's a bit vague what's on the other end of that invitation. <laughs> this isn't the tabernacle where I'm invited at particular times of year to bring a sacrifice for a particular purpose and where everybody has a particular role to play and a place to stand. That's coming later because there is a role for that in religion as well. But this isn't that. This is go to this tent and it's called, it's, it's, the word is tent. It's not tabernacle. Some translations say tabernacle. It's oh hell. It's tent, um, and and then um, it's of moedim, which is um, appointed time or appointed place. It's the, the word used for festivals and seasons. And so, what what the heck are they going to go to this tent? Same word used as the tent I'm sleeping in, of appointed time and sacred space outside of camp, like. Like some folks have got to be like, no, thank you. I will wait for the tabernacle where it is, you know, I will go here on this day with this thing. Like bring, give me some more clarity about steps, <laughs> not just an invitation to intimacy and sacred time and appointed place and cloud. And like, I don't know what I'm saying yes to. What, how's it going to disrupt my life to go to this sort of searching space and unknown space? and mystical space we might even say well and we don't really jump to it but like moses isn't the only one that goes in which kind of helps reassure me that like okay it wasn't just moses like it was like there was somebody else was brave um in verse 11 joshua goes yeah it and it even says about joshua does not depart from the tent which is this um, this lovely place of exploration and wonder about, well, he does depart from the tent because <laughs> he walks and he fights battles and he, but the phrasing of it is sort of like this ongoing, like Joshua is always in an ongoing way participating in this tent. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> um, how is that available? Well, I think there's like maybe even almost two ways of trying to understand it. There's like, like a metaphorical way, right? Like there, like he is not leaving transformation, right? He's not leaving the space that is intimate and feels whole. He's like staying there. Or you could say he takes the tent with him everywhere he goes, right? So how is he not leaving the tent? The transformation that has occurred is now with him everywhere. And, and he brings that mentality or that curiosity that, um, he brings that energy, he brings that passion, that wholeness with him into the spaces that he now finds himself. Well, like the whole purpose of going to the tent is because you're seeking the Lord, the living presence. What if that, like, what if that's just, that's what it is to be in the tent? And so what if Joshua is always just seeking after the living presence? That's how Joshua inhabits his life. 
which goes to Joshua's name. So we like to look at what names are and mean. And so we've used a few times this translation. It, this comes from Rabbi Nahum Wordlove of um, the uh, the word translated as Lord, which is um, uh, Yahweh in Hebrew. But the, many people in the Jewish tradition don't speak that name. <laughs> as a sign of respect. And I think Christians sometimes play fast and loose with speaking that name and don't honor the tradition that like that can actually be quite offensive to people. But then how do you translate that name because it's so untranslatable? So um, it has this feeling of, of beingness in an ongoing way. Um, there's a whole lot to unpack with that, but that's what, that's how you would translate the idea of that name. And so Rabbi Nahum Ward Love um, translates the name of God as living presence. And so that's a great shorthand. If you don't like the word Lord to just replace it with something like living presence, it's a great um, model. So Joshua's name has that name in it. Um, there's many names that have a Yah in it. And if there is a Yah in a name, it's the shortened form of that name of God. So the living presence is in Joshua's name. And the other part of his name is the verb Yasha, uh, which means salvation. So his name means, and it's salvation in an ongoing verb form. The living presence is saving is the meaning of Joshua's name. So how is his name inhabiting the whole idea of this tent and bringing it with him? I have a sense that the living presence is saving me, is saving you, is saving all of us that I walk around with and I connect with in an intentional way in this tent, but there's a way I never leave it with who I am. Um, which I think for me, one of the things that I like to explore is salvation can feel like such a big word. It can feel like one of those doctrinal statement words. But what if we just ask the question, how does salvation show up over time in the story of the people of God? And at this moment, salvation shows up as this leader who never leaves the tent. And that's the leader that's going to usher them into the promised land in the next generation. Oh, that will uh, that will preach right there. <laughs> as they I, know, say. I was like, I didn't, I didn't leave with it. I didn't have a good question at the end there. That's my own. No, I, I have a part. Really I, well, a... I'll say this part because I, I have. Um, sometimes we get certain kinship with certain people in the Bible for different reasons. I have like a strong connection to Joshua as a person in the Bible. So when Joshua comes up, I can't help myself but go down it like. I got, I kind of get sucked into lots of things. So sorry if that was a lot, everybody that's personal. I love Joshua. <laughs> I think it's so beautiful because it, it really, some of the Bible is like archetypal stories, right? It's like these, these placeholders for like, like you said, like what it means to be human. And so here you have Moses, who's the dynamic leader, the one who's out front, the one who's intimate with the Lord and is going to do the hard things. He's going to go up the mountain. He's going to challenge Pharaoh. He's going to lead them over the Red Sea. He's going to be the first one into the tent of meeting as a great example. And I think, you know, at different parts of our life, we need a Moses in our life, or maybe we need to be Moses for some people, right? We need to be the one that's going to say, guys, we go up the mountain. That's what we do. And let me show you, or like, that tent is safe. Let's go there. Like transformation is happening. Let's get on board with it. And I, so I think we need those people, but then I think what I hear you saying, and it's so beautifully is that we need Joshua's too. And maybe we actually are all supposed to be Joshua's like, yes, we need Moses's, but then maybe we're all invited to be Joshua's people that are experiencing the living presence as the living presence that is constantly in the business of saving, of reconciling, of 
bringing about wholeness and that we're supposed to carry that with us into every community system, family relationship that we now find ourselves in. And so what does it mean for me to be bold enough and courageous enough to be a Joshua who goes and communes with God, who seeks the living presence, wants the transformation, but then embodies that into my family, embodies that into my community, embody that embodies that into the systems that are either working for the marginalized or are not. And how do I bring about shalom in those systems? When you were saying that, it made me think, I wonder if one of the things that might happen in this tent is if we might receive some names. Um, like we yeah, actually, well, so, so we know like Moses, Moses means to draw out and that's what he's always doing is drawing people out. That's a part of the going first. Um, Joshua, uh, Yeshua is about um, this living presence of salvation. And he just, he hasn't appeared that much in the text yet. He's only appeared in Exodus 17. He fights a battle in Exodus 24. He actually goes up the mountain. He was also somebody who went up the mountain. Um, I don't know. Maybe some of us are called to be Joshua's, but maybe some of us are called to be something else. And it's in the tent that we find out our name. Mm. (laughs) That in that intimate space, God says, okay, you're not Moses or Joshua. You're Lisa. You're Jason, you're Steph. Here's what I see in you for how to inhabit your name for the sake of the community and for the sake of the world, as I've called you to be a people of of light and good. You know, mm. like like what if that what if there's some identity stuff that's a part of that tent that's a part of what we're scared of is I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to live into the name I'm given there, whether mm. it's the name someone else has had or whether it's a new name for me. It's another, it's another twist maybe on the archetypal thing that you were bringing up is to say, how are, how are there ways that we all can be a Moses and all can be a Joshua? And how are there ways that we also are uniquely ourselves and uniquely named and uniquely yeah, called like into that. something? Well, <clears throat> I also wonder about the, what about like raising a Joshua? Hmm. Like they do identify like son of none. What does it mean to parent a child that can inhabit that too? Mm-hmm. Um, to create a child that can actually trust that and move uh, in that way too. Like not, I mean, I like to play with the big characters, but I also wonder about like the people that we just get a drop of them. And, but like, they're, they're important. Like they matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. And, and he's often called son of none and none or noon means um, it's prosperity, but it comes from this idea of a propagating plant that is continually shooting new um new shoots like a, it's like a perpetual it's perpetual life so he is the son of perpetual life okay like that's going to give him some stuff to to go on to inhabit this name which would be a fascinating and important way of framing your existence when you're coming from slavery where scarcity 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 now, son of none, abundance, 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 right? There, there's, there's always enough. And to imagine, and, and, and I mean, that, that preaches to like right here, right now. We live in a society where, man, if scarcity and fear isn't the driving factors of our economy and our advertising and our very existence, I don't know what is. If we operate from a place of abundance, like there's always going to be enough. There's always something that is able to be birthed 
and that that's your foundation. That's what you're coming from is a place of abundance versus scarcity. Now, what do you do when you come from a place of abundance? You can actually experience the living presence that is always in the process of saving. Like you can't, you can't do, you can't do living presence when you're coming from scarcity because you're scared. Um, you're, you're fearful. You're having to create an other as a, as an, as a scapegoat for your problems. Um, you have to be a victim to the system. And so how do you move away from that? Abundance, abundance, abundance. Now, of course, that's a very privileged thing to be able to say, and I'll be the first to admit that. Um, but there is but, a sense of like abundance is kind of core to this story. And abundance, I think, relates to this concept of the tent being named a tent of Moedim, because sacred time carries abundance because it carries the sense that everything comes back around again. Like I recently, just as a personal practice, tried writing my weekly rhythm of a calendar in a circle as a way to practice the concept of sacred time. There is always another Monday. There is always another Wednesday. And so if I have a thing I do on Wednesday and I don't get it done, if I, if I have a rhythm where I do this on Wednesdays and I don't get it done, that's where the scarcity can come. Like, oh, I missed my Wednesday run. I missed my, but in a circle, I can look at it and say, oh no, there's a Wednesday next week. I just missed today's run. I didn't miss running forever. I missed today's. And appointed time in Moedim has this rhythm of circular time that says there's another year, there's another week, there's another day, there's a chance to start again. And that way of viewing time shifts us into an abundance mentality Mm. because it doesn't have to be crammed into today. It's not about today's work quota. In Egypt, it's about the abundance of circular time that keeps coming around again, that is a part of what the people need to learn to inhabit in order to not repeat um, what they've experienced in Egypt as they move into the promised land. Because it's just it's just such a human thing that we want to make agendas and scarcity and quotas and like all of that. But can we move into this place of abundance? of intimacy, of the sense of being saved, not having to work so hard for our own salvation. And can we take all those invitations that are a part of this tent that we go seek? And Paul kind of captures that when he, you know, talks about being. Oh, don't go bring in Paul. Oh, come on. I love Paul. Paul, when he talks about being content in whether in plenty or in want, you can still be content. And that's coming from like, I think a very abundant mindset as opposed to a scarcity mindset like i don't need everything to be content and i also even if i have everything like that that that's not what makes things content well and that okay all right good use of paul i'll take it <laughs> the, we're gonna have it I out wonder, on this podcast eventually on paul i got a feeling um but i wonder about even that mindset being a part of what it is to go to this tent, because it means you're giving up the other agenda you had for the day, like to seek God and to go outside of camp. There's a certain letting go of my plans and that becomes a part of it. Oh, I'll do that thing next year. I'll do it. But versus like, Oh, today I want to seek the Lord. I feel that I'm going to go to the tent today. Even if that wasn't on my agenda, I'm going to go because there's enough, there's enough time, there's enough resource, there's enough space for me in the tent, even if someone else is there. I feel like it's that thing. Like, I don't know. I'm very good at seeing abundance. My brain doesn't always work that way, but I really resonate with the idea of like, you can always start again. Mm -hmm. You can always begin again. 
like there's, it always will come around. Cause I feel like so often when we're especially wrestling with our faith or what we believed or like something happens and you start to question the whole thing, like the idea that, okay, it can start again. It doesn't have to be like you're off the cliff and it's done and there's never an opportunity or there's never a way back or there's, or that you're outside even. Um, like the idea that like, I'm not actually outside of it. This is coming back around. Maybe this is what we call, we call it the tent of circular time, the tent of things coming back around again. Well, and I think not to wrap up our conversation with too nice and neat of a bow, but Lisa, I think what you hit on is so important because I think that's what this whole podcast is hoping to be about is inviting people, no matter what stage of spirituality, faith, Bible, you know, your understanding of what it means to be human, no matter where you're at, we're inviting you to, to a conversation. We're inviting you to an exploration. We're inviting you to, to maybe start over. And maybe the starting over is because of, you know, feeling like I've been on the outside and I've never found a space where anyone's let me come back in. And maybe this space can be one where it's like, Hey, you're still invited to explore this Bible. Like, and, and this thing, this, this Bible, um, these scriptures are are going to help us understand what it means to be human a little bit more deeply as we move towards being people of shalom. And maybe this is a wake-up call. Maybe this posture that we hope to have, it, this curiosity, is going to make people wonder, well, what am I doing? How do I explore the Bible? How do I understand like my faith and my church and my life? And um, and, and maybe it's going to raise some really important questions on for people's journey. And so I think that's why we love the idea of we're not just searching for the sacred as if it's out there somewhere we have to find it, but we're also searching the sacred because life is meant to be sacred. Like it's meant to be an invitation to the sacred because it can be found and it is present. And sometimes it's starting over, sometimes it's continuation. Um, but it's it's there for us. Could we even say that this podcast is a tent of of sacred time where we can seek God and God might be found? Talk about it. I mean, you thought you were wrapping up with a bow, but there we go. <laughs> I'm not going to compete with either one of you. I'll just say, may it be so. May it be so. <laughs> This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Safe.